Welcome to a dying podcast. As always, my name is Nils, and today I'm in front of my computer speaking to Tam Hunt, who I believe is more or less on the other side of the planet in Hawaii, right? I am, yeah, as far from you as you can get. Yeah, well, it's actually the place where I, I spent my honeymoon, nah. so it's a place that means something to me. You chose well. Yeah, right after Burning Man, so the contrast there was kind of nice too. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely wet man here, not burning man. Yeah, exactly. And and just slightly more nature than in the Nevada desert. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, I found you through an article and, uh, and find your work fascinating. And there's just tons and tons of stuff that I, I want to ask you. Uh, but we, before we, we start there... Um, for anyone who don't know who Tam Hunt is, uh, and in any way you see fit, uh, who are you? Yeah, well, I am um, a lawyer by trade, but as with you, I've done many different things in my life, and I'm still doing many different things. Um, I've been involved with the philosophy of mind now for, I mean, informally for 20 years, and then more um, formally, more seriously for the last 10 years. And um, have begun developing um, a fairly serious theory of consciousness in the last 10 years, along with Jonathan Schooler at UC Santa Barbara. Um, I'm also a fellow burner, as we discussed in the uh, pre-session here. Um, long-time burner uh, with a Santa Barbara crew. Um, I've taken a break the last few years, um, but I'll be back for too long, I'm sure. And I'm um, also an avid athlete and um, dabbled in music at different times in my my life. And um, I'm also a writer about different, many different things, including foreign policy, renewable energy, climate change, spirituality, philosophy, current affairs, etc. So um, yeah, a fairly, you know, I'm definitely an information addict, guilty as charged. Um, but I definitely enjoy the play of ideas and communicating those ideas to folks like you. Cool. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot to dig into here. Uh, but let's Let's just go, uh, you know, straight for the mother load. Uh, I, I definitely want to hear more about your work on consciousness. Like maybe before even going into your current theory of consciousness, like how, how did that start? And, and me being a person who's really interested in doing a lot of, I guess you could say personal work, but not, you know, I'm not doing research uh, in any way, at least not yet. How did you get into that side of things? And how do you actually do research on this thing called consciousness? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little background of how I got to where I am today with my ideas. And um, I'd say kind of the first event was um, when I was 19 in Seattle, um, browsing books in the philosophy section, came across some books by Daniel Dennett and Douglas Hofstadter, The Mind's Eye by Dennett, which is a collection. And... Hofstadter's book um, called Gödel Asher Bach. And I read both those um, at that time, my late teens. And they made a big impression in terms of getting me interested in the field. And I began to read you know, more avidly over the next you know, decade or so. And of course, when you're young and dealing with complex issues like this, it's difficult to know where you stand personally. You're like, oh, interesting, but I'm not sure if I buy it all. And I began to again think more critically, probably in my 30s. And began to realize that my earlier, you know, interest in what were basically materialist approaches to, um, to mind and consciousness, um, to Dennett and Hofstadter are both pretty hardcore materialists, didn't really add up for me. 
um, to each their own. And this was always highly debatable. But for me, after a while, it didn't make a whole lot of sense that um, there is only matter somehow magically producing mind. And at some point, it emerges in the biological chain of affairs, uh, both individually, say, in a human baby, at some point, it pops into existence, or evolutionarily, it pops into existence at some point in a given um, you know, taxonomic grouping, such as you know, humans, what have you. So again, I began reading more broadly, and I came across um, the work of David Ray Griffin and Alfred North Whitehead. And these guys are more in the school of thought that's known generally as panpsychism or panexperientialism. And this really began to resonate with me as being uh, much closer to the truth. Uh, and again, I'm not saying truth, capital T. This stuff is to me all debatable. Um, and it definitely depends on your own perspective, you know, where you sit, what you found important in life as to what, um, you know, versions resonate with you. But I'm also definitely an empiricist. And so I recognize any good theory of uh, consciousness has to, you know, jive well with known facts, um, known science, known research. And so the short answer as to, you know, what panpsychism is, is that all matter has some mind, all mind has some associative matter. They go together like hand and glove, two sides of the same coin, black and white, front and back, inside and outside. And so wherever you have matter, there is some kind of mind. And in most matter, it's extremely rudimentary. And so a lot of people are like, that's just crazy. That's a weird position. I can't believe you think the rocks are conscious. And the rejoinder to that critique is that no modern panpsychist I know of argues that rocks are conscious. Rather, they would say that the constituents of that rock have some rudimentary consciousness. And that means the atoms and the molecules perhaps have some very basic humming of limited awareness. It's only, as far as we know, in biological structures that we get more complex consciousness. And what biology has done has leveraged information flows, energy and information flows, to allow for a much larger scale consciousness to occur. And so the amoeba has you know, a lot higher level of consciousness, we presume, than does an atom or molecule or rock. And as life itself has evolved more complexity, that has gone hand in glove with the evolution of consciousness. And this is, um, so personally, I share this view. Uh, and and I've come there through work with, you know, meditation and plant medicine and all sorts of things and basically feel that I've experienced that this is, uh, at least than my experience of what the truth is. But it's, it's fascinating. I have two sort of lines of question here. One is that I actually, earlier today, listened to one of the more recent episodes from the Sam Harris podcast where he's interviewing his wife, uh, who has recently published a book called Conscious um, that is obviously about consciousness. And they sort of debate panpsychism. And, and she's sort of saying that, well, I'm warming, warming up to the idea that this might actually be the case, that, that consciousness is sort of a foundation for everything. So there is consciousness in everything. Uh, around us because at the core of everything there is energy and 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 in that lies consciousness and but it's it's funny to hear their conversation because uh, both of them but especially sam is like pointing out you know well when you first told me this i pointed out that you should probably not say that out loud because <laughs> you'll be a, a laughing stock or people will right. think you're crazy 
And to me, it's, it's, it's the opposite of craziness. <laughs> but there's obvious, and I wasn't even aware of this, that, that that's potentially such a stigma around this idea. Uh, and I don't, I don't travel that much in, among scientists and researchers. I do a bit, but I'm not professionally in that field. So to me, it's just like, yeah, it's obvious that this is the way it is. But, but obviously, there, a lot of people think this is just the craziest thing you could ever think. Uh, so I, I'm just curious about your experience in that. Yeah, well, it's changing, like a lot of things do, right? I'd say 10 years ago, it was considered broadly crazy in the more mainstream community of neuroscientists and philosophers and physicists. But today, it's definitely changing. And I was at a conference a few years ago in Tucson called Toward a Science of Consciousness. And this is known as being you know, a bit broader crowd. It's not like the hardcore neuroscientists, for sure. But someone, actually, I think it was Dan Dennett, who was there as a keynote speaker, asked the, the audience at his talk, um, you know, what view they considered to be most compelling. And he asked about materialism and panpsychism and idealism, I believe. And the response he got by far the most hands raised was panpsychism. And so, again, this is not exactly a scientific survey, but it definitely shows that this view is catching on. And actually, I personally attribute a lot of the kind of newfound credibility behind the idea of panpsychism to Christoph Koch, who is um, a well-respected biophysicist. And um, he was at Caltech for many years. He's now um, at a more private research outfit up in Seattle, funded by Paul Allen, I believe. And um, he came out in 2014 with a really nice blog article in Scientific American, basically adding himself as a panpsychist. Um, or saying at least that he found it to be a, an elegant and compelling worldview that needed more fleshing out to become scientific. And of course, everyone would agree. You know, the basic idea of panpsychism is not a scientific theory. It is a philosophical position. And folks like Koch and Julia Tononi and myself have been trying to flesh out that basic framework to become more rigorous and to become testable. And of course, that's what you need for any actual scientific theory. Um, so the view that all matter has some associated consciousness is actually considered to be a lot less crazy nowadays, but it's not, it's not of course, caught on um, among perhaps those who follow this field uh, from afar because we live in, you know, still, let's say, a materialist kind of context where the assumption has been for a couple hundred years, quite intentionally, has been that um, there's nothing but matter and energy in the container of space and time. And that mind emerges somehow from uh, those collections of matter and energy. And there has been a growing awareness that the idea of emergence itself is problematic um, in this context. Of course, things do emerge. Different levels of organization do emerge. Different features of the universe do emerge. Different ways of viewing the universe emerge. But the idea of consciousness itself emerging in a particular moment in space and time where it was not at all present before has a lot of logical problems. And I alluded earlier to the basic problem of, you know, well, if it's, you know, right here at, you know, 1138 in the year minus 1 million, you know, BC, why right in that moment? Why not a moment before or a moment after? And you can also look to biology and you can see that generally speaking, evolution proceeds through incremental change. And there are occasional times of, you know, more rapid evolution, but it's still very slow in terms of, you know, this, the scales we're talking about. And so if evolution of form, meaning physical form, proceeds incrementally and slowly, why wouldn't 
mind and consciousness evolve in a similar manner. And there's a different debate here too about what, what constitutes life itself. I'm also what's called a panzoist, which is the view that life itself is a scale of complexity and that there's no, no fine line, there's no clear dividing line between what is alive and what's not alive. Um, and so when you look at debates about what is life, what is mind, they actually really devolve to the kind of the same debate with mind being the internal aspects of that debate and life being the more externalized aspects of that debate. Wow, yeah. So this is, it's fascinating stuff. And since I come from more the philosophical starting point, at least, uh, in this field, I'm, I'm naturally curious to, to learn more about and hear about how you've approached making that leap from the philosophical idea or understanding of, of well, what you've just described and try to actually bring that into the scientific world and trying to, to prove it. <laughs> how does one do that? Yeah, it was a great question. I will start by saying there is no proof in science. There's only support or reputation. You know, you can't prove things. Um, you build evidence for and you, you know, you build plausibility. And at some point in whatever field you're talking about, um, the weight of evidence generally, you know, leads to um, a preferred position. But of course, these things change over time. You look at the history of science and the one certainty is that every theory today will be shown to be wrong at some point, right? So what we're doing with our work in terms of trying to um, flesh out scientifically the basic idea that all matter has some associated consciousness is to create specific conjectures and then to create tests of those conjectures. And um, this is you know, fairly tricky to do because, again, you know, there's no proof. And so we have right now um, an assumption about a materialist worldview, which is still kind of the prevailing view um, among most scientists and philosophers. And um, I'm pulling up a presentation, one second, where I'm going to actually share with you um, some of our key conjectures. That's perfect. I'll just talk about one, okay? I don't want to get too in the weeds here. But um, so the basic idea of our theory, which we're calling now the general resonance theory of consciousness, is, you know, the couple of axioms. Um, one is that all physical entities resonate. This is fairly uncontroversial. You know, basically anything above absolute zero is going to be vibrating at some uh, rate, right? It oscillates back and forth in its, in its state. And if you actually did hit absolute zero, that would, in theory, stop. But, of course, nothing in the universe actually hits absolute zero. So everything is vibrating, resonating at some uh, measurable rate. Yeah, so everything is energy and everything is vibrating, basically. Well, it gets more tricky if you start talking about everything being energy, um, because we then get down to like, you know, what does that mean? Is it ultimately strings? What have you? So let's not go down that road right now. All right. <laughs> but the second axiom um, for our theory is that all physical entities have some accompanying subjectivity or consciousness. And that's what we've been talking about so far is, you know, the panpsychism axiom. Um, the third axiom is that resonating structures, again, which is everything, in proximity to each other will achieve a shared resonance if the coupling constant is reached or exceeded. And this term, coupling constant, is a technical term in the field of harmonic oscillation theory. And it just means that if you know you have certain rates and they're in proximity and they you know, achieve um, a certain level of, of synced resonance, then they will achieve full resonance before very long. And you know, details can change, but those are the basic axioms. So the first conjecture that we want to actually test uh, in this structure, uh, we call the shared resonance conjecture. 
we say that a shared resonance is what leads to the combination of microconscious entities into macroconscious entities, then we should be able to test that, right? And so here's an example. Um, in human brains, things we know intimately from within, because of course we are all human and have our own consciousness as human beings. The idea is that we have measured very reliably and now for like over 100 years, um, electrical fields using EEGs. And we now know that certain uh, frequencies, such as gamma, beta, theta, alpha, delta, are seen when we have certain states. And so we can, in fact, um, build on you know, a few decades now of work in neuroscience and look at, in particular, say, gamma synchrony. And this is um, 40 to 120 hertz, which means cycles per second. And this is witnessed um, with um, waking consciousness of various types, including meditation, problem solving, etc. But it's widely considered now to be an essential aspect of human consciousness. It's not the only thing, of course, as many things going on, but this is one of the few key things that's considered to be kind of a signature of consciousness. And so we can test this. Actually, it's been tested already many times, where um, Saint-Dehen, for example, in uh, France, has said this is, in fact, a signature of consciousness. If we don't see this long-range um, resonance, then we don't have human waking consciousness. So it's that kind of approach where we kind of we can look at aspects of the theory or any theory, frankly, and figure out creative tests to actually measure them, and then obviously replicate them um, in other labs. And when you replicate enough, then hopefully those ideas catch on. Cool. And and in terms of the uh, you know in in a non-scientist way of explaining it, if everything is vibrating and then you know. Uh, things or particles that are close to each other tend to start vibrating in the same kind of way, right? That, to me, if you just translate that to the human experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this, you know, forgive me if I'm not being scientific at all, I'm just, you know, making <laughs> making analogies and connections based on my experience, but uh, that it sort of speaks to, to uh, the patterns we see in emotional states in human beings. Like, if I come home and my wife is in a in you know a certain mood i'll soon find myself in that mood too there is you know research saying that within 60 seconds or so we tend to you know mimic or get um share the same kind of emotional state that the people around us are are in would that be an example of that of of you know particles in close proximity to each other starting to to vibrate in the same kind of way it is, yeah, and that's actually, in our view, one of the you know powerful features of this theory is that it does apply to many different scales, many different contexts. What I described to you is more kind of the neuroscience you know aspect, which is what we're going to focus on initially in our work because you know we're trying to basically begin from that more established you know set of um, ideas and knowledge base. But you know the, the article you read, which resonated with a lot of people around the world, which was titled "You know It's All About Vibrations." The hippies are right, man is actually true (laughs) because uh what you're talking about here in terms of emotional resonance yes you know what we're doing here you know you can look at it from different um perspectives right we can look at it from neuroscience we can look at it from you know um emotional resonance but they do boil down to the same thing ultimately and what's happening of course when your wife is communicating with you she's conveying to you her emotional state and because you care about her and frankly even if you didn't care about her to some degree you would still resonate and sync up with her emotional state. But because you do care about her, she's your wife, 
you will often, you know, assume certain aspects of her emotional state also. And we are actually now figuring out that there are fairly reliable, what they call neural correlates of consciousness, which is the neuroscience aspect of particular subjective states. And so it's pretty amazing now. There's actually a group that has figured out how to um, show patients a number of faces. And then they can actually have those people imagine a face that they've seen. And their machine learning AI algorithm can pick up the brain waves and show with high accuracy what face that person was actually imagining. Wow. Um, so it's a little scary in some ways, right? Because this kind of stuff could be used for, for evil purposes, for sure. Yeah, but it, I mean, but it's certainly interesting if you're. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, but uh, I mean, as always, uh, the the technological advancement in society are are you know magically cool and and scary as shit at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Double edged sword, right? You know, yeah. the it's always is, like that. Is apt. Yeah, and and yeah. there's there's just no way to escape it. It's just like yeah, let's accept it. It, it we won't escape the development we're 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 fueling here. So it's healthy to be scared of it, but we, there's no way to stop it. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, and I think you know the key off your question and your example about resonating emotionally with your wife. Um, you know, we are calling this a general resonance theory because we really mean that it's general. It can be used in really any context. It talks about you know, various constituents that are vibrating and when they achieve a shared vibration, a shared resonance, then they can sync up in various ways. And um, <clears throat> it's not that you and your wife become one person, right? Now you can speak of that metaphorically being one person and you may be able to speak of that more than metaphorically where if you guys are super close and actually have shown this too, there are dyads formed, uh, human dyads, where if you actually do um, achieve a certain level of emotional harmony and physical harmony, then your brainwaves actually do match up fairly well. Now, does it mean you are actually one person? Not quite. But I would go so far as to say that there is actually a calculable, what we call in our framework, omega value, which is the capacity for consciousness. There will be a calculable, but very fleeting omega value that is a third entity uh, formed by two very close people or even in a room of meditators who are really vibing together, uh, there is a very fleeting, very minimal shared consciousness. Now, of course, the consciousness in each individual is still going to be far higher in complexity and richness than that shared entity. But there's some interesting ideas. Um, have you followed um, Elon Musk's Neuralink yep. company? Yep. The ideas of Neuralace? Yeah, so here's a yeah, but feel free to explain that for anyone who hasn't. Yeah, I guess this is getting a bit out there, but it's kind of fun to speculate, right? So Neuralink is one of Musk's many companies. I don't know how he does it. But he basically is trying to save humanity from AI, which I think is actually a very laudable task. because That's a very scary set of problems, too. Um, also, you know, massive promise, but massive potential downside. His idea is that we need to ensure that the development of AI um, leads to super-empowered cyborg humans who basically incorporate AI into their consciousness rather than being separate entities that could potentially go rogue. So his idea is to develop a neural lace technology, which allows you, with your thoughts, to basically have massive bandwidth, real-time, massively fast communication with extremely intelligent AIs, like the Siri in your phone, but 
10 million times more powerful than Siri so that AI is again incorporated into you, you become cyborg. Now, let's think of this. So if we have um, 10 million people around the world who are equipped with neural lace that actually works and they have their own AIs, let's even say you know 10 billion in the future at some point, could there be a global brain formed by that massively rapid communication um, in real time that could in some way create um, a far more powerful unitary consciousness? And this framework would say, yes, it's possible, but it's actually calculable. It's all about the bandwidth of that information and about the shared resonance uh, between those constituents. Wow. And uh, to me, it's actually not that far out there if you, if you zoom out a bit. Because if you, if you look at what we've already done on this planet with the internet, it's, we've basically connected a lot of, we could look at ourselves as, as tiny little cells and all of a sudden we're all connected and, and we have an intelligence that is greater than us as separate entities, and which is the internet. That's you know, why AI can even be developed at this point because we have all of this bandwidth and all of these power and all of the, the interconnectedness of both human beings and all the information um, that's out there. So we're in a way where we are creating like a, a huge mind. And at the same time, we have the very clear development of how technology is moving into our body. Like first, it's, it's, it was these separate entities, mm -hmm. like still the, the things we are using right now are, are computers uh, and microphones that are not on or in our bodies, but with, to a higher extent, we're wearing tech on our skin, and it has already started to move inside the body with the entire biohacking um, mm -hmm. know, movement, which is it's not, it's far from everyone, but in, in Stockholm, at least, I know probably a handful or 10 people that have chips in their hands that can unlock doors and they can pay for stuff with. And, and um, I also know one person who has this um, thing called True North, I think, which is, is basically doesn't make much sense to me, but it's the thing you, uh, you put into your chest that will uh, sort of vibrate when you're facing north. So it's, it's like, it's a <laughs> compass. Because you get lost. Yeah. So it doesn't make much sense for most people to have that functionality. For most people, yeah. Yeah, but not sure it would make sense for, for many people at all. But it's, it's, it's showing how we are allowing tech to move inside our body. So the natural continued development would be to, to let it move into our brains. Which, you know, to some extent, you could argue that it already has because tech is sort of dictating our lives to a great extent. And we have algorithms, perhaps not controlling, but at least directing our behavior um, uh, to an increasing extent. So if you just zoom out a bit, to me, this makes total sense. Then from where we stand today, it might be both hard to imagine what that would be like, but also primarily how would it even work? Like, how would I connect my brain to another brain and to an AI, like how would it even physically work? But, but in theory, yeah. it makes sense. And I think we're heading there. It does. And actually I'll, I'll go one step further. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the term smart mobs. No, feel free to explain it. A smart mob is um, a voluntary group of people and it could in the future include AIs as well, along with people that is um, set up for a particular task or set of tasks or to be called upon when you have a tricky problem. And actually, David Brin um, speculates about this in his book, Existence. It's a sci-fi novel set a few hundred years in the future. Or sorry, about 30, 40 years in the future, not that far. And the idea is that basically in real time, you can harness the wisdom of the crowd, which is a real thing, right? Crowds um, in the right context can be a lot smarter than any given expert or experts. 
And the more people you have in that crowd, the smarter they get. And so the idea is that if you're looking at um, interconnected people through neuralace or or not, you can um, achieve far higher um, expertise and intelligence as a general matter by uh, this linkage. And so this could be a cool way to actually solve you know tricky problems, even in foreign policy, um, democracy more generally. Uh, one area I've been involved in at a very low level so far is electronic direct democracy, I'm trying to make this a real thing through you know online voting, but also things like smart mobs, cloud countries, et cetera. And so anytime you have a chance to link people up, particularly you know really inspired creative people, link them up in a really more serious way, you get some very interesting potential there to really magnify that brain power, that creativity. Um, so I think it's all coming, you know, but um, to bring it back to the the framework of generalism and theory is that this does actually provide a mathematical framework um, to kind of calculate what's going on and to compare and maybe to improve um, those linkages and even the, to create, you know, more effective AI, you know, this is totally speculation again, but I'll keep going anyway. Um, is that I think, you know, if we pursue um, the creation of AI along resonance principles, um, then you may actually achieve a more convincing consciousness. You know, again, we can never know if anything else is actually conscious other than our own consciousness. Even your wife, you don't know if she's truly conscious, right? You, you sure hope she is. You assume she is. She acts I like she is. But you yeah, don't know I can't sure. prove it. Can't prove it. <laughs> you can't prove it. No, I mean, I can't even prove to you I'm conscious, right? I just have to show you the best way I can that I am by convincing you with my behavior, my words, et cetera, that I am, and vice versa. Um, but anyway, what, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, if you continue down that, that, that path, I can't even prove that you exist. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm conscious of a lot of stuff, but I can't really prove that it exists outside of my consciousness. So to speak. Yeah, yeah, I mean, getting out of uh, brass tacks. Which we, it's not... Yeah, get another brass tax. I mean, really, the only thing we can prove, I think, uh, again, this is only for ourselves, is, you know, A, that I am conscious, that there is something here right now that I call consciousness, and B, um, literally the only two things, um, is that there is um, a passage of time. Everything else is conjecture and speculation. Yeah. Well, I, I could potentially even question that second um you know, truth that the passage of time. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this is me going deep into uh, the philosophical world of con world of consciousness. But, but uh, a book that's spoken a great deal to me is is um, Spectrum of Consciousness by Ken Wilber. Came out in the late seventies, mm -hmm. before I was born. Uh, but I read it recently, and and it uh, it it's, uh, it describes my own experiences of of basically going in through the various levels or, or dimensions or, you know, spectrum of consciousness and at the core of things. Um, um, one could definitely argue that time does not exist. So time is, it's, it's my consciousness is uh, the consciousness that I call Nils seems to be connected to time. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm not really sure that time exists. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how would anything happen without a passage of time? Well, you know, uh, so that's, it's tricky to, to answer uh, in this human shape and in this human uh, form. But uh, 
I guess, and I'm me not being an expe- expert in this. This is just sort of my own experience. But the only thing that I actually know exists is the present, and you know the the thing that I call the past is it, it does not exist, right? It, it's only a thing that exists in my mind as I think of it, and I also don't think I you know my representation of the past in my mind is not mm-hmm. the correct representation of what was then the now, and the same goes for the future. Obviously, it only exists. Uh, in my mind so wherever we are we are in right. sort of an eternal now and if the now is eternal then then time doesn't pass and everything that we call past and present just exists eternally but it's my experience as, as being nils in this life and in this form that that things are changing and time is passing but but it it could just be oscillating energy um you know like you're saying, everything is resonating, everything is, is, is vibrating, and, and maybe that just creates the experience of time. Um, I can't really, I, 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 can, I can see that things are changing around me, you know, things are decaying, like the plants, uh, definitely the plants in my house are dying, because <laughs> I don't take care of them. <laughs> They're constantly dying. So, you know, there's change happening and I experience that as time. But once again, that's just my experience. It's, you know, I experience you existing and I experience you being conscious, but I can't really prove it. I could use a lot of stuff in this experience that you're conscious, you know, you're speaking to me. So that's an indication that you're conscious and, and, and I can, well, not now, but if we were in the same room, I could see you in a physical form and you're moving and, you know, everything tells me that this is a conscious being or object but if i just go down to it it's still that well this is just my consciousness speaking right it's it's part of the consciousness so just as you as uh, an individual is as one could argue part of my consciousness or the experience of my consciousness then, then so is time i know i'm conscious but anything that's inside that consciousness anything that i'm experiencing i can't really prove that's that would be my sort of argument without Without having prepared that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I agree with, uh, I'd say, uh, pretty much all of that. And I would just clarify that when I ask you, how does anything occur without the passage of time? We're actually, we're getting at the same thing. And I agree with you entirely that there is only the experience present. The past is memory, which was, you know, presumably from past presence. And the future is imagination. Uh, and so the passage of time uh, for me um, as a presentist is that ongoing change, that flux that goes through our awareness. And so, yeah, when I, I mean, this is also another deep debate, right? We call it a new, go down this hole too much, but um, there's been a long debate, you know, whether time is an illusion or um, a necessary container uh, for all things. I fall more into the second category and I do some work in the philosophy of physics also. And this has been a, a big debate for a long, long time, maybe a couple thousand years or so. And um, I think one of the issues with modern physics um, has been that we've gotten away from the acknowledgement that the passage of time is really a, an unavoidable container. You know, change is clearly real, process is real. Um, therefore, the passage of time has to be real. But I fully acknowledge that, yeah, the past is... A, is memory only and the future is imagination only 
Yeah. And another way to look at it would be, you know, if one would say that not only, you know, co there's consciousness in everything, another way to, to and I'm, I understand I might be going to really deep waters here, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that everything actually is sprung from consciousness. The consciousness, if consciousness is, is in everything, one could also argue that, you know, everything was potentially created by consciousness. And, and um, in this book that I referred to, the way Ken Wilber describes the spectrum of consciousness is that at the, the core, which is actually, one way to look at it is at the, at the deepest level of consciousness, but it's actually the, the omnipresent consciousness, the, the thing that's always there. Uh, there, is, there is just, you know, mind or no mind or source or God or whatever you want to call it. That's not a good word for it, I would say, or nothingness. And, and everything that we experience, now me as a human being called Nils, everything I experience is actually, I, I'm constantly at that lowest level or deepest level of consciousness. But then consciousness has sort of been split and divided into um, new forms of consciousness or different levels of, of consciousness, I, I should say, where one divide creates um, uh, the experience of me being separate from other things around me. All of a sudden, there are objects, and I'm one object, and you are another. And, and you know, the dying plant over here in my window is another object. Um, and there's one level where all of these objects agree that, yeah, we're different objects. <laughs> and then there's another split that happens within me mm -hmm. where my intellect and my body get split. So I experience that I am something and I have a body. So the body is not fully me, it doesn't hold intelligence. It's just the brain that holds intelligence, which to me is doesn't seem true um but that's another split and then once again the intellect gets split into the persona and the shadow level so the ego basically gets split into two where my identity who i feel i am who i want to be who, how i describe myself is the persona and then i have my, my shadow side which is all the stuff that i don't want to admit that i am like yeah no i'm not greedy uh, uh no <laughs> i don't you know i i i no, i'm not selfish all of these things which we all actually are to some extent Mm -hmm. And then in the philosophical description of this, that's where all the, the, the problems in our consciousness uh, arise. It's through these divides that, you know, I'm not, I'm not fully connected uh, with my shadow side. And, and that creates a lot of problems in my life. If I'm not fully connected with the fact that my body and, body and my mind is, is actually one, uh, that creates certain challenges. If I, if I don't fully understand that, I'm actually not a separate object and, and you're another object. Everything is actually connected because if you just go down deep enough, it's, it's just particles and energy fields sort of that that creates, you know, certain problems that we would call interpersonal conflicts or stuff like that. And then when you, when you just keep sort of putting these things together, uh, you'll end up in, uh, in a, in a space where everything is connected. So then, you know, uh, as, as philosophers have been saying for thousands of years, uh, you know, the, uh, everything is one, uh, but that also means that everything is nothing. And then one would argue that everything sort of arises out of nothingness. And, and that nothingness, to me, is, is still conscious. I, you know, I don't know if this makes sense, and definitely not from a scientific point of view, because I don't have that experience or the vocabulary. Well, it, it can, it can, and it does. And, um, you know, again, I agree with a lot of that, um, but I'll clarify a few areas where I think modern philosophy and spirituality um, maybe could be fine-tuned. And so um, one of my books, 
um, I put out last year, actually two years ago, called Mind World God. Um, goes into this stuff in some detail. And, you know, I've long uh, been interested in the intersection of science and spirituality. And to me, it's really kind of where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people nowadays. You know, very few people are going to be really interested in nitty gritty details of the neuroscience or the science more broadly. But I'd say almost everyone is interested in the, the spiritual aspects of what science can tell us. And I think people are increasingly, particularly in Europe, increasingly rejecting traditional religion because it just doesn't make sense, right? I mean, this stuff was written down, you know, 2,000 years ago. We changed a lot since then. And then modern science also has a lot of problems where, you know, like I mentioned earlier, materialism can't really explain very well things like the nature of our own consciousness. It can't give us value. It uh, can't give us meaning. And so there is definitely a big gap um, there that needs filling. We have kind of a spiritual hole in our collective psyche in today's world. And um, Ken Wilber has done a great job of trying to fill that hole. And in fact, um, I've got a, uh, another book coming out fairly soon, which attempts to kind of flesh out his uh, phrase, deep science, which would be basically, you know, uh, looking in more detail at how should, how could modern science mesh well with spiritual truths, uh, perennial philosophy, et cetera, non-duality. And so the view I flesh out in this book, My World God, I guess mentioned, is basically coming from a non-dual slash Buddhist slash perennial philosophy slash panpsychism kind of view, but trying to create a, an integral whole, um, to use Wilbur's term. Um, it's a bit different than Wilbur's approach, but similar enough. And I, I think there's a, an ongoing big debate now, um, and I've been part of it myself, um, as to, well, look, is panpsychism the whole story? Is that all there is? And a lot of people are resonating with ideas of non-duality and consciousness, capital C, being the root of it all. And I've had a long debate with Deepak Chopra and um, some of his colleagues and co-thinkers. And this actually is one of the interviews in my new book coming out probably next year, where, um, you know, and maybe it's terminology. You know, a lot of this stuff comes down to terminology and people kind of um, using terms in different ways. But I've suggested that calling um, primordial reality, consciousness, capital C, is maybe problematic because most will acknowledge that it's not actually conscious. And so most will recognize that there may be pure being, pure bliss at the base of our reality, which, you know, bubbles up into manifest reality that we, you and I experience. But that bubbling up process is a bubbling up of matter and mind together. And so kind of the more technical term I'd use for my, my position here is pan-experiential neutral monism or panpsychist neutral monism. So the idea is that panpsychism can explain well manifest reality, the reality of physics and everyday experience for humans. And that reality is one in which mind and matter go together. They're two aspects of the same thing. They oscillate back and forth. But then when you get down to nitty gritty, you think, well, what's below that level? Then there's this pure spirit source, what have you. And that, that transcends this mind matter split. It is neither mind nor matter. It is pure being, pure bliss. And it bubbles up from that darkest, deepest depths into mind matter concurrently. And so, again, all of this is highly debatable. You know, whatever works for each person ultimately is what's going to, you know, uh, take root in their psyches and hopefully be useful. But my view is that, you know, uh, the more accurate one's philosophy of the world and of nature, of the nature of consciousness, 
And um, the more it meshes with the truths of modern science, then the more useful it can be in helping us find, you know, personal satisfaction. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for this. I'm learning so much. This is uh, um, fascinating. It's also really nice to just hear scientific words to explain the stuff that, uh, that I'm both experiencing, but also reading a great deal about in, in philosophy. And it, it, I really agree with that the bridging of these two that historically have been very separate areas uh, is really seems to be happening now and also feels really important as sort of the next step in, in, in humanity, trying to figure out what not only humanity is, but actually the consciousness that, that we all, that we all are. So uh, is there more to your theory? Uh, we've gone through it. Um, um, I mean, the, the basics of it, but, but like, are there more things that you want to express to, to explain it? And also how do you, how do you test these things? beyond just like stating that it, it, it makes sense. Is it even doable? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, there definitely are more ways we could talk about in terms of testing, but uh, let me maybe take a different tack here and um, suggest that, you know, one of the reasons why I personally found panpsychism useful and compelling is that it does actually heal a fairly significant split in the collective psyche that came about with the scientific worldview, which basically split off mind from nature, and explicitly so, right? So Descartes, um, you know, the most well-known dualist in his thinking, for whatever reason, including you know, fears of church persecution, said, look, we have the natural world, which God created, and it runs like clockwork based on certain rules that we can figure out by being you know, scientists and using mathematics and testing and falsification. And then we have the realm of mind and spirit. And this is also God's creation, but it's separate. Only humans have spirit. And when we went a bit further along in our collective development, after Descartes, we realized that that didn't make much sense because how do you actually get interaction between spirit and matter? And Descartes, of course, suggested the pineal gland as maybe the center of that kind of interaction, but that didn't make much sense then or now. And so uh, materialism came along, and as David Ray Griffin says very well, simply locked off the mind and spirit part of that equation and said all there is is matter. And so somehow mind emerges out of matter, but we can't explain that either. And it leaves us feeling very separate from the rest of nature. Panpsychism comes along. It's actually been around for thousands of years also, but it wasn't very prominent for a long time. But modern panpsychism says, look, um, there is both mind and matter in everything. And so even the molecules in my table in front of me are resonating with some very rudimentary type of consciousness. And for me personally, when I first kind of um, began reading about this school of thought and then began thinking to myself, hmm, this makes a lot of sense. It gave me a lot of comfort because it really made me realize that we are fully part of the world around us, which sounds kind of trite. But again, based on what I just mentioned about the intellectual development of the last few hundred years in the Western world, that hasn't been the case. And so it gives us kind of a new way of feeling at home in this world. And it also does give us, you know, new tools to maybe build um, new toys and new ways of interacting with our universe. And so I think there's, you know, a real 
merit there, not just as a, oh, that makes sense philosophically, but it really kind of makes sense as a personal philosophy. And again, when we mesh it with um, you know, traditional spirituality at various schools of thought, it can be a really nice bridge between um, some spiritual traditions and modern science. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I, I feel like I want to share sort of my, um, so I, I've had many experiences that led me to the same insight, but I obviously use different vocabulary and, and have different, uh, you know, experiences and different, different knowledge to describe it. But one of the experiences where this became really clear for me was when I, I realized that, you know, and this is once again, me simplifying things, perhaps to an extent that that <laughs> um, could be criticized. But um, uh, if I look sort of up and down from, from where I am standing as a human being, if I zoom in and if I zoom out, like if I, if I would zoom in on anything, I, I find molecules, right? I find tiny particles that are actually just knots of, of energy. They, you know, an electron is not this tiny ball that we see in, 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 in school books, but that's the way we think of them. And if we look at the behavior of those particles inside a molecule, uh, it's, it's, they're spinning around each other, right? And, and um, they're basically, you know, uh, behaving based on forces upon them. So if you have a, a positive charge, uh, you'd be attracted to a negative charge and vice versa, and you'd be repelled by another positive charge. Uh, and then if you, if you sort of turn your gaze the other way and, and look to the skies and zoom out and, and you, you, you know, gaze into the universe and you see these huge planets uh, circling around each other, they're basically just gigantic particles behaving in the same way. You know, certain things are attracted to each other, certain things are, are re repelled from each other. Uh, and then uh, just rationally if we're somewhere in the middle of this in between on, on some sort of level it would make sense that we behave in the same way and, and if you look at human beings who actually behave in exactly the same way you know i have these forces upon me all the time from other particles mm -hmm. which i could call other human beings or plants or animals or places or activities or or certain types of food where i'm attracted to certain people certain places certain activities certain types of food and, and repelled by others. Uh, and I, you know, I feel good when I, and I, when I naturally follow that, like, yeah, I'm attracted to this person. I want to hang out with this person. And I, that tends to make me feel good when I hang out with that person. And if I really feel I do not want to have anything to do with this person, I kind of not feel good when I'm in the same room as that person. So it's like I'm, I'm a particle with that certain electrical charge behaving in a certain, mm -hmm. uh, in a certain way. And, and then if you look at, at, at humans just from that simplified perspective, to me, it makes a lot of sense because you can explain a lot of the things that, that are part of the human experience. Like, for instance, you know, uh, uh, like today, I've had a fairly stressful day. There's been a lot of things to do. I've gone through a lot of meetings. I've been late. I, you know, there are emails coming. So uh, I've been a stressed particle today. And I've been stressed because I have a lot of opposing forces pulling me into different directions. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, a depressed and lonely particle doesn't have any forces uh, and sort of feels lost in this uh, energy field or whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, you know, if, if I create something that people are attracted to, I might start a company that becomes successful or a YouTube channel or when I get followers or whatever. It's just like, yeah, I'm a particle that a lot of other particles are attracted to. And, and, you know, 
we are doing this job together. Basically, what we're doing is, is we're basically just doing three things as human beings or particles, whatever you want to call us, where we're distributing energy, redistributing energy uh, between ourselves, where we're processing information, and then we're creating new particles. Uh, in our case, we call them children. <laughs> and uh, uh, having that insight, the insight actually came um, through plant medicine and meditation. It was a, a peyote ceremony, which is this uh, ancient indigenous uh, Mexican uh, cactus. Um, and I, I had the experience of me being an entity walking on a cellular membrane. So planet Earth just became like a membrane for me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just one of these weird, you know, there are a lot of these cool videos of, of uh, tiny, tiny things that, you know, move around on, on a cellular membrane that kind of looks like animals, but they're just, you know, uh, molecules. proteins and yeah, molecules. Uh, and I felt like one of them uh, just walking around on this, on this cellular membrane and looked at everyone else around me as particles and then sort of realized, yeah, we're in that way of looking at things, we're not different from electrons or planets. We're behaving in the same way, but, and then potentially, this is me once again going sort of wide out, just thinking out loud here, but, you know, who's to say that an electron or a planet uh, isn't conscious experiencing the same kind of thing that we're doing? Like, yeah, I'm feeling stressed right now. I'm feeling really attracted to, to something over here <laughs> uh, or repelled, uh, repulsed by something else. Uh, just that we could never understand it because we're on a different level as they could never understand us. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this would be really hard to prove, but that's the, you know, the philosophical slash, you know, going deeper into your own mind version to some extent, I guess, at least of, of well, maybe you don't agree at all, but that, that comes up for me at least. I, I do agree. Um, and I would um, riff on that a bit. And mentioned the idea um, of suprahuman consciousness. So if you take the principles that we've talked about, you know, briefly today that I flesh out in my work, there's no reason in principle you cannot have higher level consciousness. And so we can certainly speculate and have some fun um, looking at things like stars, you know, our star is conscious. And Greg Sams has a, a fun book out uh, looking at whether our, our sun is in fact conscious. And um, <clears throat> this can be an empirical question, you know, so what we're looking at with our theory right now is looking for different signatures of consciousness that are common to different levels of consciousness. So whether it's, you know, an amoeba's consciousness or a bat's consciousness or a human's consciousness, can we find commonalities in those structures, those energy flows that then we can look for in other structures like stars and my, my impression right now is that it's probably not enough stability of structure in stars to allow for any persistent level of consciousness you might have this kind of ongoing chaos of you know impressions forming here and there because because it's such a rough environment of course it's rather hot in there there's not any stability um but that's an empirical question you know maybe there are uh pockets of stability even in stars what about galaxies? You know, galaxies are, of course, comprised of, you know, a few hundred billion stars. Is there any possibility for unitary consciousness in a galaxy as a whole? Now, if there was, it would be a very, very, very slow moving consciousness as far as we know, right? But it could that be 
um, equally rich as ours is in a far slower time scale. What about galactic clusters? You know, so again, this framework allows for some kind of some fun speculation, and then you know, eventually down the road, even testing. Um, or even, you know, are we going to co-create God? I mentioned earlier, you know, the Neuralink network, you know, maybe we reach a point with a few hundred billion people around the solar system all linked together by neural lace. And maybe at that point, we create something worth being called God, you know, through our collective consciousness. So it's kind of fun stuff to think about. And um, I think definitely there's a lot here to explore and keep us busy for a long time. Yeah, definitely. And we're coming up on the hour already. And uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but... I think what could be interesting for anyone listening are, are uh, two things. Partly finding out like where can one turn to to read more about your work and find out what you're up to, um, uh, what you've already written, what you're coming out with, that type of stuff. And then uh, my my follow up question would also be where do you see what's sort of the next step on this journey of of you know it's sort of the eternal journey, right? Uh, humans trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. stuff <laughs> trying to understand who we are how the world works that seems to be everything we do like yeah we only explore um the universe consciousness yeah it's like the only thing that's happening um um but where do you see what's the next step in in well perhaps you know the world where uh, where you reside in in science and and the scientific community Uh, focused around consciousness? Well, I think we are um, in a really interesting period where there were a couple of decades where various researchers were um, working in this field, but getting no respect, basically. That's really changed dramatically in the last 10 years, where a lot of people are in this field, and you can actually use the C word now, consciousness, and not be you know laughed at. And you've got a bunch of theories out there now making some good headway. Um, Julia Tononi's theory, the integrated information theory, IIT, maybe the most prominent right now. Um, Stan DeHane's global workspace theory is also quite prominent. Um, It's less general, though. It applies to um, neuroscience context, whereas IIT can apply to any information context. I'm hoping that before too long, our theory, the general resonance theory, uh, becomes talked about in the same breath of those theories. Um, It's developed to fill gaps in those theories and be a bit more uh, powerful in some ways. Uh, so we'll see, but a lot is going on and, um, an interesting development in the last few months, uh, the Templeton foundation, um, a U.S. based foundation that's actually unusual and that it funds work in the intersection of spirituality and science. Yeah, I, I actually, actually uh, yeah, I actually, I did, sorry to interrupt you. I actually interviewed David Potgeeter from that uh, organization. Um, ah, very cool. I interviewed him a few days ago, but when people listen to this, it, the episode will have been out for two weeks or something like that. Yeah. So it's a nice time. Well, they're doing that. some interesting work. Yeah, so they're actually now funding um, a series of head-to-head uh, battles, essentially, between different theories of consciousness. And the first two they're testing are the two I just mentioned, IIT and DeHane's Global Workspace Theory. And the idea is that, you know, we're now at a point where we can actually create, um, you know, good tests that can be actually completed and yield information that can actually maybe even falsify theories. And that's the gold standard for science, right? If you can falsify something, you know, in theory, that means that that theory, it goes away. Now, in practice, of course, it doesn't really go away. Um, It gets modified or people push the evidence out of the rug. But either way, we're now at the point where we can do interesting tests of different different theories to actually compare and contrast. So that's kind of the next step right now in the, you know, um, field of 
consciousness research, cognitive science, neuroscience, what have you. Um, it's cool that they're creating this kind of showdown tournament, <laughs> like the, the last right? yeah. standing that yeah. to beat all the others. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, street fight. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of fun. You know, I, I'm I actually really enjoy debating. I, love, I know a lot of people don't have a stomach for that kind of thing, but I enjoy it. I think if you do it lightheartedly and you know with respect, um, it can be really useful. And science is all about trying to actually you know compare ideas and test them against each other. Um, so I'm looking forward to it personally. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of like it's you know it's kind of like with consciousness, right? That everything that we see as existing exists because it's it's sort of in between a, a charge you know there's there's good and bad and night and day and life and death and uh, you know the only thing to make something exist uh, it requires its counterpart and and the magic of existence arises in between those you know s opposing forces to some extent and you know debating and 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 you know conflict and uh uh, is is that's that's where creativity comes yeah. from. That's where innovation comes from. That's where everywhere comes from. Everything comes from. So obviously, that's the way forward for science too. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Cool. Yeah, and you asked also like where people can find uh, more information on our work. Yes. I'll mention a few things. Um, my writer page on Facebook is Tam Hunt. Um, friend, my writer page. Also, my blog at medium.com, Just also Tam Hunt. And then I got a couple of books on Amazon. Uh, I mentioned Mind the World God, um, came out in 2017. I've got a collection of essays on science and spirituality and philosophy called Eco Ego Eros. Um, and then if you're interested in my work on um, renewable energy and climate change, I have a book out called Solar, Why Our Energy Future is So Bright. So there's a few resources for you. Fantastic. Um, I'll be sure to check out quite a few of those. Thank you so much. Before we end, anything, any last remark, anything that you feel, you know, yeah, this is something we should have covered that I feel is important to mention um, or anything like that that comes to mind. I think we're good. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Tamhan. Uh, this has been a pleasure. And to anyone listening, uh, as always, reach out with your reactions, emotions, thoughts, questions, whatever. If you want to keep um, de diving deep into consciousness, you've just heard some recommendations on where you can find more stuff from Tam and feel free to reach out to me as well as always I'll see you next week thank you so much for listening over and out